Thanks for joining us today at the Vine Church. We're one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this service with others and give by clicking the link below. For now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. Sing this, I give you glory. I give you glory for all you brought me through. Now I'm ready for whatever you want to do. I'm moving forward to follow.
outshining all the stars in bloom. Your love, your love is like the wildest ocean. Oh, nothing else compares. brothers and sisters in Christ, I greet you with the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I urge you to keep the fight of faith. Fight to retain your faith in the good news of Jesus, who conquered sin and death. Fight for fellowship with God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who longs to be with you. Fight for fellowship with the Divine Church, for you belong to the body, and the body belongs to you. Fight oppression and injustice which opposes the kingdom of God. And fight to share your faith and make disciples until you reach one, until everyone. The good fight. Well, how are you, church? You good? I was really good until that moment. Uh, thanks, Ken. Kind of ruin it. Um, for me this morning, so thanks a lot. Um, and, and thanks for that awkward moment where I was going in to lean for the like bro hug and you were like, what, what are you doing? I was, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I thought we were having a moment there, but apparently not. So, <laughs> well, hey everybody, it's great to be with you. For those of you that I haven't met uh, yet, my name is David Walters. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. And if you're here for the first time today, the awkwardness that you just experienced was related to the fact that in just a couple of weeks, uh, it'll be my last Sunday here at the Vine as senior pastor. I'm getting appointed to another church, and uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that today um, as we continue our series called The Good Fight. Um, this past week was amazing. Uh, my favorite ministry week of the year is like Camp Kids Week. I love it. Uh, leading into Christmas Eve is pretty awesome too. So there's some great weeks, but Camp Kids Week takes the cake. It's the best week of the year. Part of it is because like the kids did an amazing job like getting their parents to buy them a lot of peanut butter and jelly to bring in, um, including my kids. And, uh, and I mean, that's an amazing thing. That is actually going to supply um, all the kids that I serve serves throughout the year with the backpack program, which is uh, over 150 kids, a month worth of um, meals. And so that's an amazing amount. And um, yeah, so that's pretty awesome. We've got Baptism Sunday coming up on June 30th. We're just going to leave the peanut butter and jelly in there. And so if you've ever wanted to be baptized in peanut butter and jelly, just come on that day. And uh, if you have peanut allergies, you just stay away from that day. Anyway, so uh, now I'm joking. We will actually have water in there for baptism. And that'll be my last Sunday. I'd love to have the, the privilege of being able to, to serve in that capacity with you. Um, but uh, part of the reason I loved Camp Kidsy this past week is because of the theme. The theme was Power Up. And uh, if you weren't here last week, the whole stage was decorated like Mario Brothers. It was awesome because the whole like metaphor for power up was through video games. And um, what I loved about that is that I was part of the, the first generation to have video games. And so I came along and video games like show up and, um, and, and I was just kind of reflecting on like the, all the different like gaming consoles that we went through. And bless my parents' heart, they got us a Commodore 64. Does anybody remember a Commodore 64? Is that thing good for anything? Like all we could get it to do was like put a cursor on the screen and it was like cursor, blink, blink, blink. We're like, what does it do, dad? That's horrible, you know? And so then we got an Atari. Anybody get an Atari? Yeah. Love 
loved the Atari. I don't remember a whole lot about Atari. We had a couple of games. We had Donkey Kong. Anybody got Donkey Kong? I learned this week through Ken, who was one of our hosts for Camp Kidzu, that Donkey Kong was originally named Monkey Kong. But in translation from Japanese to English, Japanese made it, to English, the M got changed to a D, and that's how we got Donkey Kong. So if you're wondering why there was this big gorilla up at the top throwing barrels, and we call it Donkey Kong, there's your answer. So I remember that. I also remember, like, I love it when old people try to play video games. It's hilarious. And uh, I remember when the Atari came out, my great aunt, who was really old, and my grandmother, who was really old, came, and they tried to play Pitfall. Anybody remember Pitfall? Yeah. They fell a lot, and um, we would just laugh hysterically at them, and then, you know, then we went on to, like, the, the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, moving on. I remember getting a PlayStation and going down to my um, grandmother's house in Plains, Georgia, and we were playing Madden football, and she came and sat down and watched, like, 15 minutes, and she's like, who's playing? And we were like, we're playing, and she's like, what do you mean? And we're like, it's a video game. She was like, wow, and we were like... <laughs> pretty sad. Anyway, yeah, um, but, but if you know anything about video games, you know you've got to have like these superpowers um, to win the games, um, unless you're playing Tecmo Bowl, and you just get Bo Jackson, yeah, who is like the power-up guy. Some of y'all don't know, but y'all should know. Anyway, and um, yeah, the, the more power you get, um, the, the better you're going to do. And you need superpowers and you need to power up in order to like win the game. And, um, and so usually whoever has like the best weapons is going to win. I, I re- learned this like firsthand um, from me playing Super Mario Brothers with my younger brother. He's four years younger than me. Um, we kind of bullied him in the house. That's what you're supposed to do when you have a brother. And um, I was joking. Like, gosh, like, I was joking, not really, but yeah, I mean, I was joking. Anyway, so, so one of the ways that I bullied him is like when I was Mario and he was Luigi, um, he would have player number two, which did not have control over the pause. And so as player number one, if you paused and unpaused really quickly, when player number two was jumping over pits, they would fall straight in. And so if you were ever impatient as player number one and you just wanted to get back to your turn instead of Luigi taking his time over there, you just pause, unpause. Well, my brother got tired of that. Rightfully so. And so I'm laying on the ground. He was sitting in a chair. He gets up on the arm of the chair and then comes down like he was jumping off the turnbuckle. And he comes down. That was a wrestling. Anyway. And he comes down with a flying fist and he hits me right there underneath my eye. It's the first and only time he ever hit me in my life. But he cut me, gashed me. And I could have retaliated, but I deserved it. And so I just took it, took it and moved on from there, and I never paused and unpaused again. <laughs> he, he won that moment because he had the best weapons, his fists. He won that moment. And, and, and many games have been won because of the best weapons. Uh, my kids now are, are kind of into the Fortnite thing. They were in it, and then they got out of it. Now they're back in it again because it's cool again. Um, not sure how that worked, but anyway. And what they've learned in there is that whoever usually gets the weapons the fastest and gets the best weapons, has a good chance to making it to the end and being crowned victor of that round of Fortnite. They've learned that whoever has the best weapons has the best chance to win. Um, What we know, unfortunately, through our world history is that whoever has the best weapons and the most weapons typically wins. And when it comes to our faith journey, sometimes we experience what we would call spiritual warfare. Sometimes we experience these kind of battleground moments in life 
where, where things move from the way we want them to be to where maybe there's a situation or circumstance going on. It's not what we want to be happening, and it feels like we're in the midst of a battle. And the same thing that's true in video games, the same thing that's true in world history is true of our spiritual battleground. And that is um, whoever has the best weapons is going to win. And God has given us the most powerful weapon that we can have. And we're going to take a look at that today. So if you brought your Bibles or you've got a Bible app, I want to invite you to go with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we're going to be in chapter 2. Bless you. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. If you weren't with us last week, we started a, a series called The Good Fight. Uh, based on a phrase that is used by this guy named Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament in the form of letters that were written to churches or to individuals. And in his last three letters, two of them were to this guy named Timothy who is called his spiritual child of faith. And the reason that he was a spiritual child of faith is because Timothy led him and his family to faith in Jesus Christ, thereby calls him his spiritual child. And in these last two letters, he writes to him instructions about how he is to carry on leadership in the church and how he is to carry on the movement of proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the world. And in doing so, he includes this phrase that's used multiple times, fight the good fight, fight the good fight. And last week we learned that in fighting the good fight, we fight it with good and we fight for good. The with good means that we fight with faith. We fight it through our trust in God. And if we'll trust God with the most important aspects of our life, the forgiveness of sins, our eternal salvation, our righteousness, then we can trust God with all kinds of circumstances and situations. We fight for good, meaning that we always want to fight for what is right. And so we listed out a number of those things that are right and that we should fight for. And if you want to, you can go back and check out that service online and, and take notes. And, and it might help you with the remainder of our series. What we're going to hear today is how we have the most powerful weapon at our disposal if we will use it. And it's interesting because we're going to read that from a passage of Scripture that comes just after Paul introduces to Timothy this idea that we're fighting a good fight. And, and so when your life moves from this playground mode to battleground mode, where you move from like life's good, everything's cruising along to all of a sudden something just turns it and you move to battleground mode where everything seems like a fight now and you're struggling with circumstances and situations. It could be relationally, it could be financially, it could be emotionally, it could be spiritually, whatever it is and you move to, ground, uh, to battleground, we are called to fight the good fight. And then he gives us a glimpse how we can do that with the most powerful weapon found in chapter two, beginning with verse one. So listen to what Paul writes to Timothy, his spiritual child in the faith, and one of the last letters and one of the last things that he would say and instruct. This is what he says. First of all then, everybody say first of all. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. Everybody say good. Good. And it is pleasing. Everybody say pleasing. In the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, not sure why he had to put that in parentheses. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Then listen to this, verse eight. I desire then, then that in every place the men and women, we'll include you into that too, should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And we'll stop there today. The most powerful weapon that you have at your disposal to fight in the battleground of faith is prayer. The most powerful weapon that you have at your disposal to fight in the battleground of faith and life is prayer. Not necessarily the sexiest topic when you only have a couple of Sundays left, but it's one of the most powerful topics that we can talk about. There's oftentimes I walk away on Sundays when I've preached on prayer and I thought, man, that totally tanked. Because I know it's not like the topic that fires you up the most, but it will be the topic, if you'll embrace it, that will change your life the most. I wholeheartedly believe that. And I think that Paul's gotten to a place where he believes that too. Because right after he says, just two verses earlier, hey, Timothy, fight the good fight. He then tells him how to do that, practically speaking. And he says, first of all, I urge you to pray. First of all, I urge you to pray. Now, what I've learned from my own experience and from the experience of others being a pastor for 24 years is that typically prayer is a last of all for us. It's kind of like that last thing that you do, not the first thing that you do. And the reason that's the last thing for us is, is because, Mike, it, it's a little bit harder to pray. It, it's not quite as, like, immediately gratifying for us. I know that you think that prayer is a good thing. How many of you think prayer is a good thing? Raise your hand. Every, like, this is the participatory part of the message. If you don't have your hand raised, you're lying, and we're in church. You shouldn't do that. Like, like the answer is prayer is a good thing. But you know that I'm baiting you with your hands raised. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but what I know statistically speaking is that most people believe in America that prayer is a good thing, but most people don't pray. Most people believe prayer is a good thing, but they don't pray. And, and one of the lead indicators of that is that pastors don't pray. On average, pastors spend four minutes a day in prayer. Maybe, maybe that's why churches seem to be lifeless and we are in need of revival in our country. Because prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have at our disposal, and yet we don't do it. And Paul says, hey, Timothy, listen, as you lead into this movement, as you continue to proclaim the gospel, as new churches start to, to form, as you build into church leadership, hey, pray, pray, and first of all, pray. And I think he had to encourage him because we need the encouragement too. When life moves from playground to battleground, we don't like it. We don't like it. it it's, it's tense. It's stressful. Our emotions are all over the place. Maybe our thoughts are all over the place. We, we feel fragmented. We don't like what's happening. Things are falling apart. It's impacting the number of people. We don't like the battleground. And anytime we're under stress, our body wants to get out of it as quickly as possible. And, and so we look for quick and easy, and prayer is not quick and easy. What is quick and easy is quick is, hey, I'll do something in my own power. 
Like I'll work on my own strength and I'll try to fix this as quickly as I can. And so we'll go to quick. We'll go to easy. And easy is talking to another person about this situation instead of talking to God. Anybody familiar with the story of Job in the Old Testament? Job, there's a whole book. Maybe you thought it was Job. It's actually Job. It's about a man. And he had everything. I mean, he had like everything that we would think of. It's kind of like the American dream. You know, I mean, he had a lot of stuff and he had a lot of like close relationships. He had a big family. Everything was going great until one moment, everything was wiped out. And when everything was wiped out, he went from playground to battleground. And when he went to battleground, what happened is he goes to quick and easy. And so he gathers together some friends and he starts talking to them instead of talking to God. He looks for quick and easy. But going to the friends instead of going to God really didn't fix anything for him. It wasn't until he went to God that things moved back to playground for him. We want quick and easy. The problem is that when we pray, it's not necessarily quick and easy. Because when we pray, we submit our timing to God's timing, and we submit our power to God's power. But here's what happens. When God acts on our behalf, it's always perfect power and perfect timing. We call that providence. We call God's perfect provision through power and his perfect timing providence. And if you will pray, you will experience the providence of God. It might not be in the way that you wanted it. It might not be in the time that you wanted it. But it will be perfect. And you will see that you will experience the victory that you've been looking for if you will pray first of all. Now, it, I, I do this because this is like my job. I don't know if you've ever studied like Christian history. Um, obviously, you've got the, the people in the Bible that are like giants of the faith, but I've studied revival and I've ever studied like the greats of, of Christian history. And all of the greats of Christian history and all of the revival movements were started on, on prayer and a focus on the Bible, all of them. There, no, no great of the faith and no great move of God has, has ever been void without those two things preceding it. And some of the greats of the faith, if I mention their names, you might recognize them, might not. I can give you a little bit of context, but this is what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther was the great reformer of the, the church. The, the great Protestant Reformation came through Martin Luther, and this is what he said about praying first of all. Listen to this. I have so much to do. This was like a long time ago. I have so much to do that I shall, that's how you know it's a long time ago. I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. The first three hours of his day. Hundreds of years ago, he said he's got a lot to do. Life's been, gotten a lot busier since then. And what he said is, the first thing that he needs to do because his life is so busy is to spend three hours of prayer. And most of us, when it, when it comes to busyness, we look at busyness, we go, I got to get up early so that I could get a start on my to-do list, or I got to get up early so that I can get to work, or I got to get up early. And, and then we might save, instead of three hours, we might save three minutes at the end of the day. But the, Martin Luther, the great reformer of our faith, he wanted to spend three hours in prayer when he had a busy day. Uh, John Wesley, who was a reformer of the Anglican church, he started the Methodist movement. He says this about prayer. God does nothing but by prayer and everything with it. So if you want to see God move, pray. If you don't want to see God move, don't pray. But if you want to see God move, pray. He does nothing without it, but everything with it. 
And then there's this guy named A.J. Gordon. Um, he started Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Um, some people might know about Gordon-Conwell School or Seminary. This is what he said. I love this, if I can read it correctly. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you've prayed. Let me read it again, because there's a lot of praying in there. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can never do more than pray until you've prayed. I love that. Because like our prayer, like our prayer life is not void of us doing anything, but the most powerful thing that we can do is pray. And and then we can do what God instructs us to do on that, but not until we first get instruction on what to do. Church, this is what I want to say to you in one of my last letters to you, one of my last Sundays to you. And I preach this over the 12 years that that we've been worshiping together on a weekly basis. I don't know if you've gotten it. I don't know that I'll ever get it completely or you will. But what I know is that, like, we need to stop playing and we need to start praying. We need to stop playing and we need to start praying. If we will pray, first of all, it will radically transform our lives, especially on the battleground of life and faith. Braden, my oldest son, who's in the room, um, he and I, two falls ago, we took a trip up to South Bend, Indiana to watch um, Georgia and Notre Dame play. Go dogs. Okay, 9.15, they were all in. Y'all were a little asleep on that. Um, maybe it's the sound of the rain and you're like, I don't know. But anyway, so we, so we go up to Notre Dame. We take a stop um, on the way up. We spend the night with um, my best friend, who's a pastor in um, Nashville, uh, Tennessee. So we stop in Nashville, spend the night. We get up the next morning and we go to this little place on 12 South, which is like their cool road. And um, it's a coffee place and it's a breakfast place. And so we get it and it's packed. And when I say packed, I'm like really packed. And um, there was no place for us. We find a, a table outside and we go outside and we sit down and we're drinking coffee or Kevin and I are drinking coffee. Braden's not drinking coffee because he's 12, you know, and, um, and we're eating our breakfast. And somehow, I can't remember why, but the, the subject of prayer comes up. And Braden can remember this, but the subject of prayer comes up. And then Kevin and I, my best friend and I, like we, we can't talk in that moment. We just start weeping. And we start weeping because we realize that we're talking to this impressionable 12-year-old that like the most powerful thing that we've discovered in our life is prayer. And that if he could just discover that the most powerful life or most powerful weapon that he has in his life is prayer, it will radically transform his life. And we are overwhelmed by that. And um, it was a really awkward moment for Braden. And Braden's like, what do I do to adults? They're breaking down. Like, coming out. What do I do? I don't know. But what you do with that is you pray. You pray. And like, I can't like beg you enough or urge you enough just to start praying. And, and I don't know, I don't know that like, you even know where to begin. And I don't know that Paul like necessarily knew where Timothy, like the, the, the all-encompassing aspect of prayer. And so he just starts listing things. He's like, I urge you to offer supplications. The word supplications, when you go back to the original Greek meaning, it means like to bring your needs before God. And those can be like somebody else's needs and they can be your needs. They can be small needs. They can be big needs. Listen, like God's not too big for your small needs. Like you can bring big, small, personal, like somebody else's needs, you can bring those to God. Then he uses this word prayer, like we weren't already talking about prayer, but he uses this word prayer. And in the Greek, the word prayer means meeting. 
And I think part of the breakdown why we believe that prayer is good, but we don't do it is because we don't schedule it like we were schedule a meeting with somebody else. Most of you are going to have meetings this week, and most of those meetings are going to be on some schedule. Some of y'all are going to have practices this week, and that practice is going to be on somebody's schedule. And some of us don't pray because we've never put God on our schedule. And so how do we start? Well, we don't start by jumping in like Martin Luther from, for three hours every day. You'll flame out real quick, maybe even in the first three minutes. Um, but if you will take your calendar out, and this is the only time where I'm saying, hey, get your phone out in church. You can do it right now. Get your iCal, get your Google account, whatever you use. If you got something old school and you want to write it down, you can do that too. That works. But every day, first of all, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to meet with God. Maybe you start with 15. And then as you grow in understanding what John Wesley and A.J. Gordon and all of the greats of faith, including those that are in the Bible and including Jesus knew, you'll grow from there. So bring your supplications, bring your prayers, uh, bring your petitions or intercessions. And that word actually, when you go back to the original meaning, it means to interview. And I love that thought. Like I love the thought that we get to interview God. And here's what I think that means. Most of us would say, hey, what's prayer? Well, it's talking to God. Yeah, it's talking to God and God talking to us. It's a two-way street. If you've ever had a conversation and it's a one-way street, that's not a conversation. And it doesn't last very long. In prayer, in intercession, in petition, what we do is we interview God. And we bring to God our stuff. And then we let God speak into it his stuff. And, and, and I've learned that my scripture reading, it's not a separate thing. I used to think I'd have my Bible time, then my prayer time. But what I've learned now is that that's God speaking and he still speaks through his word. In fact, if there's anything that he speaks and I think, hey, that's God's voice, like I know to check it against God's word. That's God being interviewed by us. In an interview by Tom Brokaw and Mother Teresa, Tom Brokaw said, uh, Mother Teresa, um, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she said, well, I don't say anything. He just listens. Tom Brokaw said, well, well, when God speaks to you, what does God say? And she said, he doesn't say anything. I just listen. And then she added, and if that doesn't make sense to you, I can't explain it. There's a, something profound that happens when we listen to God. It's profound because that's God's provision speaking to your heart and to your mind. And, and then he ends in instructions because sometimes we struggle to pray. And he says, so bring your thanksgivings. I don't know if you need me to break down thanksgivings. Do you need me to break that down? It's pretty simple. It's giving thanks, right? But, but here's, why I think, here's why I think it's included in all of our list about instructions of prayer. Here's why. We pray because of the battleground, Right? We pray because of the battleground. And in the battleground, it's really easy to focus on what's going on around us. When you're giving thanks to God, you're focused on victories God's already given you. Listen, your brain, it is amazing. Your mind, it is powerful. It can do a lot of things. You know what it can't do? It cannot be grateful and grumble at the same time. It is impossible. And so you know what I do every morning? When I wake up, I'll sing a song to the Lord, and then I get my journal. And in my journal, I try to get through 10 things that I'm thankful for from the previous 24 hours. You know why? Because I want to start my day being grateful, not grumbling. I'll get to the grumble, just not in that moment. 
first of all, I want to thank God for the victories that I saw in the last day. When we start to start to pray, and I know it's hard. That's why Jesus' disciples came to him and said, hey, Jesus, teach us to pray, not how to pray, but to pray. Teach us to pray because we believe it's good. We just don't, we just don't do it. Teach us to pray. We need these little tips. We need this movement. And when we'll start to pray in the battleground, you'll see that things will shift back to the playground. He then goes on, he then goes on to say that sometimes, basically it gets down to this. Sometimes the battleground is not like at an individual level. Sometimes the battleground comes from those that are, that are like above you and decisions that are made above you and, and decisions that are being made around you that don't necessarily relate to you individually specifically. And, and so he says this, I urge you then to pray for leaders and all those that are in authority of you. And, and he's talking about kings and he's talking about princes and, and governors that, that rule over the earth and then any leader that's above you. And so maybe some of the battleground stuff that we experience, it feels like it's coming from like our president or maybe it comes from national leaders or state leaders or maybe it comes from global leaders. Maybe it comes from church leaders. Shouldn't, but maybe it does, you know? And, and so like sometimes it's out of our hands and what he says is to pray for that. Like when you experience a battleground and you're feeling like it's coming from above you, well then we're called to pray for that. In fact, my general rule, it's kind of standing rule, I say it often is, you should, you should pray for your leaders as much as you talk about your leaders. You should. You should pray for your leaders as much as you talk about your leaders. I had a conversation, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, um, it was about an hour-long conversation about President Trump. I don't know that I've ever spent an hour of concentrated time praying for him. But, but I should. That's my medicine. I should. And, and you should too. In fact, it's just a good general rule. When you find yourself talking about somebody else, you should pray for somebody else as much as you talk about somebody else. Um, that's what happened last Sunday at a church in Virginia. Um, after President Trump played a round of golf, he, uh, he decided that he was going to go to a church that was in the area, and he wanted to pray for uh, those that had been involved in the shooting that took place in Virginia. And, um, and so with about 15 minutes notice, he let the church, um, McLean Bible Church, know that he was coming. The pastor there is a guy named David Platt. Uh, David Platt's a good George Bulldog. He and I were there at Georgia at the same time. I actually know him, just a little name drop. Anyway, and so, um, and so, um, so, he, um, so he notifies the church that he's coming, and David Platt did something interesting. He prayed for him for the president. In fact, there's a picture of him uh, praying over him. And you can look at that picture. You can look at me. It doesn't matter. But I wanted to read you the prayer that was prayed over him because I love this. Uh, I loved the prayer that he prayed. Um, this is what he prayed. Oh God, we praise you as the one universal king overall. I love that first line because just in case there was any confusion about who the universal king was, <laughs> got cleared up. Uh, you are our leader and our Lord, and we worship you. There is one God and one Savior, and it's you, and your name is Jesus. And we exalt you, Jesus. We know we need your mercy. We need your grace. We need your help. We need your wisdom in our country. And so we stand right now on behalf of our president and we pray your grace and mercy and your wisdom upon him. I love that. There's a, there's a preaching technique to where instead of just calling people out, you call all of us out. So anytime you hear me use a, like, like a plural pronoun, that's really me just saying you, okay? All right? And so I love that. 
He's saying, we need this, we need this, we need this. Oh, by the way, hey, would you give this to this guy standing next to me? It's awesome. Anyway, he says, God, we pray that he would know how much you love him, so much that you sent Jesus to die for his sins, our sins. He corrects himself, right? Our sins. So we pray that he would look to you, that he would trust in you, that he would lean on you, that he would, um, that he would govern and make decisions in ways that are good for justice and good for righteousness and good for equity. Every good path. That's the gospel. He just prayed the gospel of Jesus over our president. Lord, we pray we pray that you would give him all the grace he needs to govern in ways that we just saw in 1 Timothy 2. Ding, 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 sermon illustration. Quoting the scripture has been planned for today that lead to peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. God, we pray your blessing in that way upon his family. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray that you would give them clarity, wisdom, wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you hear what he's doing there? He's just saying, hey, like, like Donald, the Donald, he's listening in. Fools reject wisdom. Wise people receive it. Please, oh God, give him wisdom and help him lead our country alongside other leaders, praying for other leaders. We pray today for leaders in Congress. We pray for leaders in courts. We pray for leaders in national and state levels. Please, oh God, help us to look to you. Help us to trust in your word. Help us to seek your wisdom and to live in ways that reflect your love and your grace, your righteousness and your justice. We pray for your blessings on our president toward that end. Amen. What a powerful prayer. And and I was, just, I was just thinking, like, what would happen if, like, CNN and, and Fox decided for one month they weren't going to commentate on the president of the United States or on our leaders or any political party, and they just had scrolling at the bottom on that ticker a prayer, and you just prayed whatever came up. They just did that for, I don't know, a couple hours, maybe a day, a couple days, maybe a month. Don't you think it would change the climate and the atmosphere of our nation? You know why? Because Proverbs tells us that God holds the hearts of our kings like water, and he can make it move however he wills. God says that if we will get on our knees and pray for our nation, then he will restore our land. And what Paul says to Timothy is, if you will pray for our kings and our leaders and those that are in authority over you, you will experience peaceful and quiet life. It will be godly and it will be dignified. By show of hands, how many of you would sign up for that? Everyone in the room. Because that's playground, not battleground. How do we get there? We pray for those that are in authority. I don't think it's coincidence that if you turn the page in your Bible or me turning the page in mine in chapter three, he starts off by listing qualifications for leaders in the church. And, and when it comes to praying for those that are in authority above us, I, I just wanna invite you and urge you and, and just plead with you to pray for, to pray for two specific, two specific leaders in our church. That's Andrew Irwin and Gus Bishop. Um, two years ago, our senior leadership team um, started making plans to uh, kind of change our model of ministry from uh, what we call a scalable ministry, where we have all ministries are like centralized, and then we have two campuses. 
Um, basically kind of like a human body where we've got two sides of it. You see the two sides? Y'all get it? And then there's like central nervous system and it controls the two sides. Y'all, y'all tracking with me? That's called scalable. What, we've, what we believed God was moving us to was um, replication. And so we wanted to replicate. And so in order to do that, we're going to move to kind of a traditional campus um, uh, multi-site model where, where each campus would have a campus pastor. And the plan was, until um, there was an appointment change with me coming up, the plan was for me to give oversight for both of the campuses, but then we would have named campus pastors at, at, at both Flowery Branch and Chateau. Well, those plans got kind of hijacked a little bit, but we still felt like this was the best model uh, to move forward. And if we ever wanted to add another um, multi-site or another campus in the future, we knew that we would need that. And so, um, so the reason that I ask you to pray and urge you and beg you to pray for Andrew and Gus is because we're still moving to this model. Well, I say we, y'all are still moving to this model. Y'all are going to live into it. And, and what that means is that as Andrew assumes the role of lead pastor, he's also going to be giving oversight to our um, Flowery Branch campus. And Gus Bishop will be giving oversight to our Chateau Alon campus. And both these men, I want you to know, have my 100% full endorsement. As Timothy includes a list, or Paul includes a list of Timothy of what, what a qualification is of those that would step into this oversight role. And listen to what he says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Braden, did you pay attention to that line? Okay. <laughs> For if it... <laughs> For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, meaning he must not just be uh, new to the faith, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation by the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I read through that qualification, and I go, man, these guys fit that to a T. And you might want to add to qualifications of what it means to be a leader of the church. You might want to add to that list some of your own qualifications. That problem is they're not listed here. Unfortunately, in all of Scripture, this is actually the only list that mentions qualifications to be an elder. And whatever you and I think should be added to that list is irrelevant because that's what we've got. And when you read every one of these things, it's relevant to Andrew Irwin and Gus Bishop. In fact, so relevant that when the conference called me and they said, hey, you're moving um, at the end of June. Um, and they started talking to me about who my successor would be. I stopped them and I said, the only successor for me is Andrew Irwin. He's been a part of our church for four years. And in addition to like meeting all of this, he cares. He cares a lot. In fact, I... I'd say that he probably cares about you more than I care about you. <laughs> kind of joking, but not really. Um, 
He shows it in a different way. He shows it really well. He can get a lot done. And, and one of the things that has bugged me about the vine and just bugs me about church is that we're a pretty complacent bunch of folks. I mean, not a lot of urgency. In fact, when, when we were early on in our church's life, we'd get to our birthdays and we'd celebrate like record attendance and like things that were like not charted for new churches. I mean, most churches don't even make it. We hit 500 people at four years, y'all. And at four years, I remember saying, we can't afford another four years to reach another 500 people. Like, I believe with his vision and his leadership, we can do a lot. Like, I've been the pastor for 12 years, and I expect you, under his leadership, to do way more than was done in the first 12. No pressure. He loves lost people. And he, he gets fired up when lost people come to know Jesus. You need to pray for him. Gus, I, I've been a friend of Gus's, a pastor with Gus for you know, almost um, 17 years. And he's been a part of the church since the very beginning. You know, when we first started the church, it was four people. It was me and my wife, first two kids. We had more kids because you've got to grow a church one way or another. <laughs> and Gus and his family, they joined in. A few other families joined in when we started. He was there. And he's been throughout, and he's grown in his leadership. He's grown in his anointing. And he's one of those guys when he calls you, when he calls you, um, and he says, hey, like if he said, hey, we need to go fight, like I'd be like, where are we going? Yeah, let me know. I'll bring my fist. That's all the weapons I need. Anyway, <laughs> y'all like how I like wove that back to like the beginning when I talked about. All right, anyway, I thought it was awesome. But yeah, I'd be like, where are we going to fight? And can we get some big guys like Ken and Josh and some other folks to go with us? Like I'd go, I'd go. I don't even really need to know what we're fighting about. If he says, hey, we need to go fight, I'll go. Let's go fight. I mean, that would disqualify us for the role of being a pastor, but, um, but it'd be fun, and I'd do it because he would need it. And um, that's, that's the type of relationship we have. But he cares too. He cares a lot. In fact, I would say he probably cares about you more than I do. I would. Um, there's not many people that love people as passionately as Gus does. He'll love you. If you're a Chateau Campus person, he'll love you. He'll care for you. Um, and he loves lost people too. In fact, I was kind of struck by this last line. Like, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. I, Gus, I don't know if you agree with me. Man, you might be well, more well thought of by outsiders than you are insiders. Like, he loves outsiders because he knows that they need the love of Jesus. And he's got a great reputation with people that haven't come to faith yet or don't go to a church. He does. But I want to say, hey, if that's true, that you're more loved by outsiders than insiders, Jesus was too. In fact, it was the insiders that put him on the cross. So you just keep focused on the outsiders. Keep focused on the outsiders. Jesus had a resurrection, bro. We're called to pray. We're called to pray for those that are above us. And when we do, when you all raise your hands, quiet, peaceful, dignified, godly lives, you'll get that. That's what happens when you pray. It might not be in your time. It might not be in the way that you want it. But it will happen. You will win. You will win if, first of all, you pray. Well, God of creation, there at the start before the beginning of time.
With no point of reference He spoke to the dark And fleshed out the wonder of life And as you speak A hundred billion galaxies are born In the vapor of your breath The planets born If the stars were made to worship So will I I can see your heart in everything you made Every burning star A single fire of rain Creation sings your praises so
salvation. You chased down my heart through all my fear. On a hill you created the light of the world, abandoned in darkness to die. And as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. When you lost your life so I could find it here. If you left the grave behind you, so did I. I could see your heart. You're the one who 